welcome to this throwback edition of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, where we remember the past and choose to repeat it. I'm one of the producers, Aaron, and you can usually hear more from me on our bonus shows for members. But today I'm here because I chose this week's throwback episode as a preface for an episode that will come out next week that's on a specific topic surrounding police funding. This throwback episode reiterates the importance for continuing to push back against our militarized police state and asking our government on all levels to reallocate funding to systems that actually keep us safe while we reimagine what our public safety could look like. Today's episode was originally published on August 8, 2020. Sources include Frontline, The Daily Show, The Takeaway, Novara Media, The Mother Jones Podcast, Newsbeat, Boom Lawyered, Deconstructed, The Michael Brooks Show, and Democracy Now! Enjoy! When you were reporting our film out of Newark, I remember that you said something that always stuck with me, which was that you see relations between the police and African-American community as a gauge of race relations in general. So, I mean, you're seeing this through the prism of the larger story of race in America. And I'm just wondering if you could comment right now as you're seeing this unfold in Minneapolis, what is this telling you today? Yeah, it's telling us that we are, it's like the kind of culmination of the things that we've seen in the past few years and the past decades. It's a barometer that this is still something that can happen. And the other point is, I think when we were talking, I've said this too, that in some ways, police departments bear a disproportionate burden as it relates to these issues. And the reason being that whenever you see something explosive happen, overwhelmingly it is in response to an issue of police use of force Mm -hmm. we can just kind of go back in case after case after case after case and it's you know a police officer who hits someone police officer who shoots someone in this case a police officer who appears to have asphyxiated someone and people react and it just kind of detonates these social tensions that were there before but the reason why i say that that's a kind of undue burden on policing, and I don't mean to let people off the hook for that, is that when you report in these communities, and I've, I've done a lot of these stories now, um, many more than I would have liked to, but when you report in these communities, the first thing that people tell you is not necessarily about the policing incident. And so, as an example, when I went to Ferguson, people there wanted to talk about schools. They wanted to talk about unemployment. They wanted to talk about the poor quality of housing there. They wanted to talk about all kinds of other institutional disparities and institutional failures that fell along lines of race. And uh, I went to a rally, which was ostensibly about the the police shooting in Ferguson that had kind of culminated in all these tensions. Mm -hmm. And I was talking with people who were saying, we're suspending too many teenagers from the high schools. You know, the, the suspensions just seem to be the first thing that comes to mind. You're throwing kids out of the schools and so on. And so people were looking at a much broader slate of social and uh, socioeconomic issues. And the policing was just one of them. And so I think that was important to personally to understand how the policing became kind of a barometer. Like when once you looked at Uh, the way that policing functioned, it was almost an indicator of the way lots of other institutions were functioning in those communities. I think a lot of the conversation that I've heard from everybody on this panel and and from every author that I've read or everyone who's written a study on it says the same thing. You cannot talk about crime without talking about lack of opportunities, without talking lack of resources, without talking communities that are oppressed or not or underserved, underserved communities. So my question then becomes, what is the process? Because I'll, I'll tell you from a personal standpoint, I go, what happens in the interim? We've seen repeatedly in America police departments that go on go slows or go on like basically mini strikes, even if they don't call it a strike. What process do you see unfolding on the way there? Because you're saying to these people, we're, we're getting rid of the police as you know it. And I mean, 
police departments hire thousands and thousands of people who earn a living from this, I can see many people who don't have a vested interest in allowing a smooth transition. So is, you know, have, have any of you seen any thought that's been put into how that transition would happen? Yeah, you know, there's two ways to think about it. It's manufacturing the political consent for this. And part of that story is about neutralizing the power of police unions who become a locus for a kind of ideology that says the only way we can solve our problems is with people with guns. And in New York in the last week, over 15 elected officials rejected police endorsements and went and took police contributions and gave them away to bail funds. They said, we're not going to work with these police unions anymore, not because of their pensions, but because of their toxic politics. But the other thing is that we have very concrete interventions in mind to deal with very specific things that police do, including shootings and homicides. We have evidence that shows that well-funded and well-run community-based anti-violence initiatives, credible messenger programs can reduce the violence without driving young people into mass incarceration or labeling them gangbangers or super predators. Let's talk about the racial element then, which is how do you convince large swaths of America's population who are wealthier and white to buy into a policy where they go, we do like the police. Why would they buy into your philosophy? How, how do you try and move that needle? Because it, the needle will need to be moved at some point to get to the tipping. Well, it's an interesting question because in many of those communities, they barely have the police, right? What we're asking them to imagine is a world like the one that they live in. In many of these communities, police are not driving down their streets. They're not seeing the police at every at every juncture. Every, you're not seeing people aren't being stopped and frisked on their sidewalks, right? When their kid gets caught smoking weed, they deal with it at home. The idea of them liking the police is largely theoretical, I think, and not tangible. And it's interesting because I think in many communities where the police are the most present, those are the communities that are calling for less police. But at the same time, respectfully, Josie, I I find like when you read the stats or if you if you if you just read through America's history, a lot of the time black leaders and, you know, black community leaders they're the ones who are asking for more police. You know, when people talk about the crime bills back in the day in America and being tough on crime, I've seen the videos of black community leaders saying, we need you to send in more police, send in as many police as we need more police. Is there a disconnect in, in the black community where is it like older black conservative people? Or I don't even know what it is, like not conservative as in like Republican Democrat, but rather just older black people saying, no, we need more police. And, and and a different generation saying a different thing. I think what, James Foreman wrote an incredible book about this a couple of years ago. And I think one of the things that he concluded that I think is worth keeping in mind is that um, historically, in a, you know, you think about the late 80s, the early 90s in particular, when Black leaders were calling for more police, they were also calling for a lot of other resources. We'd like more police. We'd also like better schools. We'd like our kids to be able to go to the park. We'd like an after-school program. We'd like jobs, right? And what they got was more police, (laughs) but Mm -hmm. they didn't get the other stuff. And so what we're seeing now is that only investing um, in, in law enforcement does not create the kind of change and does not create the better community that we want to see. When I worked in the South Bronx, they couldn't get their trash picked up (laughs) for weeks. But you could find a police officer if you walked five steps in either direction. Is that the kind of world anybody wants to live in? I don't, I truly don't think anybody, white, wealthy, poor, black, immigrant, non-immigrant, wants to live in that world. I also think to Josie's point and to your question, Trevor, there's part of this process is also culture, people, people having to change and culture changing. Mm-hmm. And that often takes time. And I think we're in a moment where we can call for more because when I show up to a march in Los Angeles where 50,000 people come out, it's not all black people. It's a multiracial movement led by black people, but I see all types of folks holding up Black Lives Matter signs, defund signs, a largely a younger generation saying we are tired of the ways in which police have related to black people and we stand on their side. Um, Natalie Portman, who is Natalie Portman, you know, I had a long talk with her about defund the police. The M4BL Movement for Black Lives put out a letter where we had celebrities and communities sign on to it to defund the police. And Natalie had to have like, we had a real heart to heart. And she said to me, I really feel safe with the police. And saying this to you makes me deeply uncomfortable, but it's true. Wow. I don't know how to 
I don't know how to deal with this contradiction. She was like, I'm going to go study, send me everything you have. I'll do my own research. And a couple days ago, she wrote on her Instagram post, um, I'm with the defund the police movement. And here's my process. I was not, I was deeply uncomfortable with this because as a white woman, they have, they have kept me safe. I have called the police on people. They've kept me safe. And now I understand that my safety has everything to do with black people's unsafety. That to me is where we're going. People are, are reimagining, taking the time they're studying. They're trying to figure this thing out because there's no easy fix. Yeah. And I think we, we have to take note of how long that process can be. Right. So like formal uh, protest against police violence in this country by black folks been happening since the early 1900s. Right. Like, and then, white affluent liberals sort of understand that concept around 1967 with the Kerner Commission being, uh, you know, put together by uh, President Lyndon Johnson. And then then being like, oh, this is going to keep happening unless we fund these programs. And then we have the the building of mass incarceration and the investment in um, policing and further policing, the 94 crime bill. And then you have Black Lives Matter in 2013. And now we're getting to defunding the police. Like that's a long arc. And it's understanding like there's a lot happening, like some some weeks or years. Um, And so there's a lot of rich opportunity right now for that kind of consciousness shifting. What do you see then as a police system that would both ensure public safety and be a productive use of resources? Because I don't think it's realistic to completely defund any measure of public safety. So I think that there is a role for police to play, but that is for the most serious crimes. And there are police who agree with this. Police have taken on way too much. There are people who have mental health crises and police are tasked with responding to people who are in the middle of a mental health crisis and they quite frankly are not trained for that, nor should that responsibility fall on them. Police have been tasked with dealing with the issue of drug use in this country and that issue should not fall on them. So when we're thinking about defunding the police, I really want to emphasize that we're really talking about reinvesting that money into services that are better equipped to respond to society's problems. Um, So thinking about things like violence prevention programs and putting counselors in schools instead of cops, things like job training. I mean, I do know an NYPD officer here in, in New York who expressed exactly what you were suggesting, that he doesn't feel equipped to handle, you know, people who are dealing with mental health issues and felt really helpless in terms of engaging with that community. So I think what you're saying, and maybe I'm, I'm I hopefully I'm understanding this correctly, is to really decriminalize areas that, particularly in areas of public health, so mental health, substance abuse, and and things like that, so that police can focus on actual criminality. Well, I think there's two things here. I think the first thing is defunding and reinvesting those resources into what we're talking about, things like mobile crisis patrols, job training, counseling. But I also think we're talking about exactly what you just touched on is that we really need to prohibit police from enforcing a range of non-serious offenses. And by reallocating those resources, we can do that. By limiting the role and scope of police, we are able to do that. You know, crime isn't random. Most of the time it happens when somebody can't meet their basic needs. And so they go through alternative means, you know, instead of focusing on what I would say is the back end where police come in once behavior that's been criminalized or an action that's been criminalized has been committed, they come in at that point. But what we're talking about when we talk about defunding and reinvesting is really focusing on the front end. What do we do so that people don't have to engage in the behaviors that would lead them to contact with the criminal legal system? Obviously, with the protests in response to George Floyd's death, there'll be a number of proposals as to how the police can improve, particularly in um, in Minneapolis. What's interesting, actually, is in the book, you detail several examples of the kinds of reforms you, you hinted at at the beginning of the, uh, the interview, the sort of procedural justice stuff. 
some reforms about how these kinds of atrocities could be avoided in the future. Of course, that hasn't happened. It's happened again. Can you just quickly list the kinds of reforms, the kinds of pilots which have been trialled in places like Minneapolis over the last 5, 10, 15 years? Yeah, so Minneapolis was really held out as a kind of shining star because of its embracing of all these procedural justice reforms that the Obama administration and others were putting forward. They had, you know, implicit bias training. They had mindfulness training. They had community police encounter sessions. They implemented body cameras. They tried to diversify the race of the police department. They created early warning systems to identify problem officers and to, you know, correct their behavior. And none of this stuff helps. It's been completely ineffective. And I think that that is a big part of both the, the anger by the protesters and the violence by the police, in part because I think the police have run out of excuses and they're down to just doubling down on violence and authoritarianism. Uh, They've run out of liberal excuses for, for what they do. We say we want to be challenged, we say we want to hear all sides, but that's not how we act when we seek out podcasts. I'm Mike Pesca, host of The Gist, and I'm crazy enough to think that we are up to the challenge. I challenge myself, I challenge my guests, I invite you in. We'll talk about such issues as masks. I mean, I know they work, but on a population level, the evidence is less than clear. Mass shootings horrible, but they account for less than 1% of all shootings. Do we do ourselves and our society a disservice when we focus on them? These questions and more explored and challenged every day on The Gist, wherever you get your podcasts. Do you know of any examples where alternative models to our current model of policing in the United States have been successful? Policing in other places doesn't necessarily look like it does in America. And there are many sort of different kinds of forms of law enforcement in other in other countries. From what I can tell, some of them are much more, much less brutal, much more successful than American policing. But it's important to point out that like American policing is unique. It is very unique, right? Because it is rooted in a history of racial subjugation, of slavery, of Jim Crow, of classism and racism that is unlike anywhere else on the planet. It's just not analogous to other places, right? And so when people talk about, well, we can keep the police, we can reform them, look at look at Sweden or Norway or these Scandinavian countries or look over, you know, look at this small island or whatever it is. Those are those places are not us. You can't you can't excise American policing from the history of American policing. There are examples where reforms have made minor improvements. With so much talk of defunding or disbanding police departments, people might be surprised to know it happened right here in New Jersey. In Camden, New Jersey, new procedures meant to bring officers into closer face-to-face contact with the people they serve seem to be having a positive effect. The police force in Camden, New Jersey, was in such rough shape two years ago, it was disbanded. Now it's being praised an example of good policing. A lot of people have been talking about Camden lately, which I think actually is not a good example. Why isn't Camden a good example? Camden has been kind of held up as like a national model because in 2013, they disbanded the city police in favor of a new kind of like police force that was run through the county, but still only had jurisdiction over the city. And they fired a ton of officers. They hired a ton of new ones. They trained them and all these like de-escalation tactics and community policing. And, and the bottom line is that if you look at the numbers, right, the number of violent crimes dropped over the past five years, 38% decline um, in violent crimes. And this is considered to be an example of like the future of what's possible when you disband the police. It's not that there weren't things in Camden that were admirable, at least on a, at least on some level, but 
the idea of Camden as being the future is actually not reflective of like what we actually know about what happened there. So number one, like they disbanded their police department as part of a state austerity measure, right? Like here's New Jersey trying to cut the budget. They spend a lot of money on policing and in, in, in Camden, the city is trying to cut the budget. And so they basically like impart these austerity measures, which is not the goal here. The goal is to invest the money that you're spending elsewhere, not to just cut the money that you're spending as a way of reducing city budgets when city budgets are already have already been reduced way too much. Also, they impart, they implemented a ton of surveillance. There's been like r- much more aggressive policing in Camden has been the reports from um, people on the ground. And if you have, a, if you get rid of the police and then you just put back in more police and you give them fancy names and you, you're still seeing police brutality, then like we haven't solved the problem. We're talking about rethinking what the role of police is entirely. And there hasn't really been anywhere that's done that, right? We haven't really seen that across the country at any point that I know of. We have breaking news out of Minneapolis that the Minneapolis hour, City Council members at a rally about an hour ago have announced their plan to disband the Minneapolis Police Department. Our commitment is to do what's necessary to keep every single member of our community safe and to tell the truth that the Minneapolis police are not doing that. Our commitment is to end our city's toxic relationship with the Minneapolis Police Department to end policing as we know it, and to recreate systems of public safety that actually keep us safe. Mayor Eric Garcetti says he and the city council have agreed to take $250 million from the city budget from every department, including LAPD, and redirect the money to social programs that help minorities and the underserved. San Francisco Mayor London Breed wants to give a part of the police budget to black communities in the city. Mayor London Breed says the amount they're looking to redirect will be announced on August 1st. I talked to San Francisco Police Chief Bill Scott about the decrease in funding. To reallocate funding to programs that are going to help the overall city objectives, that's not defunding. I mean, we suffer budget cuts all the time. Yes, it's it's head spinning how quickly that caught on. And in fact, the International Association of Chiefs of Police just issued a statement basically saying, don't cut our budgets. You know, I want to talk for a moment about what I think it's really about and then actually something that could go wrong. I really view the defunding movement as a call from people in communities to be saying, the police are not helping, they're harming. And meanwhile, we have a lot of unmet needs that society is not addressing. So let's stop pumping money into the institution that's harming us and give money to the institutions that we need to help us. There's some sense in that. And even as the IACP points out, we defunded mental health a while ago, which is why we've got some of the problems that we have. Government, quite frankly, has dropped the ball on many of its jobs. Defunding the police is complicated because there's some scholarship that suggests that a very poorly funded department is a dangerous department. Officers are stressed to the max. They don't have equipment that they need. Um, You know, I, I, I can see that both ways. That's very, very, very tricky. But I think what we need to do is catch a breath and figure out, do we understand the underlying problem and are we ready to face up to that problem? I became curious about what cops actually do all day long because what cops are, are trained to respond with force and the law. They're law enforcement, law enforcement. And the question is, is that the right response to substance abuse, homelessness, domestic violence, name it. And what I did is I walked through all the functions that the police served and just kind of did a matchup. You know, does the skill set of force and law address this issue? Let me give you kind of a good example because it's so mundane. Cops spend a fair amount of time, you know, taking traffic reports for accidents. Is that a good use of their time? Are they trained to do that? Or would, you know, some recent college graduates 
do a better job of that. Do we need cops? New Orleans just decided that they don't. And they contract that out. Domestic violence. You may well need force. It can be a very volatile situation. But you also may need mediation. You may need somebody to go in and try to calm the situation down. You may need social work skills, try to diagnose what's going on in that particular domestic unit, see if we can't help long-term problems. Again, cops aren't trained to do that stuff or aren't trained adequately. What I did was I took that all apart. And at the end of the day, I said, look, there's a function that policing serves, but there's a lot of what we send police to do that really could be addressed with different skill set. And I think that's you know, very much at the bottom of what folks are talking about with the defunding movement right now. I have this dream of a completely reimagined idea of first responders. First responders would be trained much more substantially than today's police officers on a wide range of disciplinary skills. So they would know how to use some force and they would know about the law, but they would also know about mediation and social work and EMT and conflict resolution. They would be incentivized in a completely different way than the police are today. They'd get credit when they solve problems. They'd get rewarded for not using force, for not bringing people into the criminal justice system unless absolutely necessary. They'd get rewarded for solving the problem that caused them to be called to the same address 10 times. If you look at the streets right now, there are lots of people, maybe tens and hundreds of thousands, who actually have an idea of what policing ought to look like compared to what we're seeing now. So maybe it's a little less of a hard sell than we might have thought. You know, veto-proof majority of the Minneapolis City Council says, I think quite correctly, we need a Department of Public Safety, not a police department. It's ironic because a lot of police departments call themselves Departments of Public Safety, but what the councilors in Minneapolis are trying to say, and I applaud them, is our goal as a society is to make sure that people are safe along a lot of dimensions. You know, are you safe if you're homeless? Are you safe if you can't conquer a substance abuse problem? And is your family safe in that set of circumstances? Are you safe if you're mentally ill and not getting care? We need to start to have a more capacious understanding of what is public safety, and then we need to target our resources toward achieving that, instead of just thinking that we're going to go around. I mean, the concept of policing is sort of like, we're all at personal risk from bad people at every moment. Our homes are being broken into and our and our bodies violated. And there are certainly neighborhoods and communities in these countries that have very serious problems of that nature. It is not most of the country. And the really sad irony is that the places that suffer the most from this are the very ones that are getting the least help and the most harm. So now I get to talk about one of my favorite people on Twitter. Her name is Mariam Kaba, and she goes by Prison Culture on Twitter. She did an interview with Chris Hayes back in April 2019, and I recently listened to it and read the transcript multiple times, and it was positively brilliant. And I have to say, she's probably single-handedly responsible for me over the last week changing my thought process around prison abolition and police abolition. So she's a prison abolitionist, activist, and writer, and she advocates for community-based solutions. Okay. And she gives an example in this podcast where she talks about what if there's a drug addict in your neighborhood named Bill, and Bill breaks into your house and steals your TV. You're not going to call the cops, right? You're going to call Bill, or you're going to call Bill's family, because this is a person who's known to you. Everybody knows that Bill's a drug addict. Everybody knows he keeps breaking into people's houses, and people are like, Bill, get your shit together. You're going to call someone who knows Bill to encourage Bill to get his shit together, maybe go to rehab, what have you. But what if I don't know Bill? What if Bill's a stranger? Well, think about what would happen now. You go outside, be like, oh, no, my Subaru's gone. And then you call the cops. You'd call the cops. But then what do the cops do about it? They come over, they take some notes, they write a police report, and then they do fuck all. You never hear from them again. Yeah. And so Miriam Cabo wants to imagine a world in which instead of calling the cops, there is a neighborhood association to deal with problems, right? 
And this may sound ridiculous. Oh, well, we're going to have a neighborhood association that's going to deal with crime. It sounds ridiculous until you think about the ways in which cops respond to certain populations and what actually gets done when you call the cops. Like, mm-hmm. you feel like you've been vindicated somehow. You call the cops, you make your report, you voice your outrage, you told on somebody. Yeah. Somebody's going to get in trouble. But what has been accomplished, Right. The person's right. going to get in trouble. You're never going to know what the re- reason was for stealing the TV. Are they poor? Are they uh, addicted, drug dependent in some way? Mm-hmm. And that person gets funneled into a system. The system doesn't care about making, about rehabilitating him or fixing the core reasons of the TV theft. Sure. It's just you got somebody, you put somebody in jail. And then there's somebody else who's going to come in the neighborhood and steal your fucking Subaru anyway. Okay. No, I mean, that, that makes sense. So, and like, it's, it's a thing, right? My, like, right. it's, I, I love my Subaru, but it's replaceable. Right. That's not the case in like murder mm-hmm. or like rape cases, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. Like those questions. Those right? are rough. Those are rough questions. But how do we, you know, what, what, what do present abolitionists say to that, Jess? Well, we've got some news there. Most murders go unsolved. Amani, people are literally out there getting away with murder. That's yeah. not just a phrase. It's no. a reality. Yeah. So some folks want to say, well, what about murders and rapists without examining how the system really works now? And it doesn't work out so well now, does it? It doesn't work well at all. So the clearance rate for murder cases has decreased from 90% to 64%. Wait, what does that mean? What's a clearance rate? So clearance rate doesn't even mean the person who committed the crime got convicted. Clearance is essentially cop talk for a case that ends in an arrest or a case in which the perp is identified without the possibility of arrest. So, for example, if the perp died. So that means that a third of murders never even lead to an arrest, let alone get solved. If you're murdered, there's a one in three chance that your killer will never be found. People watch entirely way too much Law and Order and think that the cops always find the culprit. And they just don't. Okay, Jess, I totally get where you're going with this. You're saying that we should be out there murdering more people, right? Because we're not going to get caught. (laughs) That's what you're saying? Because I've got a list. I've got an Arya Stark list. Yeah, we can just start going down the list, knocking people out. That is not at all what I'm saying, Imani. I am not saying that whatsoever. Well, that may not be what you're saying, but that's what I heard. (laughs) But seriously, folks, what's interesting about Miriam Kaba is how she talks about people relying on the policing model that we have now because it's all that they know. I mean, it's true. So, So the idea is, you know, we have to do something. We have to do something to deal with crime and criminals. And this is what we've been doing. Mm -hmm. So this is what we're just going to keep doing. And Miriam's response to that is, well, it's not working, and it hasn't worked for 400 years, so maybe we should try something different. Like, she has this whole, <laughs> she goes on this, she goes on this, I, w- I don't want to call it a rant, because I don't like saying that women of color rant, but she she does talk about how frustrated she is when people get angry with her about her ideas of abolishing the police. And she's like, don't get angry with me, get angry with the system that yeah. you've been upholding for 400 years, which doesn't work. So why are you mad at me when we could just get together, sit in a room and try and come up with some alternative solutions? And that means non-police solutions. So things like sending social workers for domestic violence, intimate partner violence related issues, sending counselors for substance dependency issues, mental health counselors for people with mental health issues, absolutely removing police from schools and focusing on counselors in that space. But I got to say something here. We cannot go back to sundown town. Because white people like to police their own communities. And when we do, we tend to chase out the brown folks. Why don't you explain quickly what a sundown town is in case people don't know? Yes, totally. So, you know, as we've said, the history of policing is absolutely baked into sort of white identity in this culture. And sundown towns are literally places 
you know, where I grew up in states like Nebraska, Missouri, Arkansas, where when the sun went down, you got the hell out of town if you were brown or black because they were patrolled by white patrols to keep the neighborhood integrity, right? And like, we hear this in modern day zone, like, you know, neighborhood zoning fights, right? Like neighborhood character fights and city things. Like, that's all about all of that. So as we are talking about community-based solutions to policing, I just really think it's important for the white folks to be like, no, we can't go back to doing that bad thing again because that's right. no good. Right. We're not going to have a bunch of George Zimmerman's patrolling exactly. areas shooting kids for exactly. you know, having iced teas and Skittles. We're not doing that. We say we want to be challenged. We say we want to hear all sides, but that's not how we act when we seek out podcasts. I'm Mike Pesca, host of The Gist, and I'm crazy enough to think that we are up to the challenge. I challenge myself, I challenge my guests, I invite you in. We'll talk about such issues as masks. I mean, I know they work, but on a population level, the evidence is less than clear. Mass shootings, horrible, but they account for less than 1% of all shootings. Do we do ourselves and our society a disservice when we focus on them? These questions and more explored and challenged every day on The Gist, wherever you get your podcasts. My guest today is a fighter, a long-standing campaigner for social justice and human rights, and the co-founder of Black Lives Matter. Patrice Cullors is also the founder of Reform LA Jails and author of the acclaimed book, When They Call You a Terrorist a Black Lives Matter memoir. She joins me now from LA. Patrice, thanks for joining me on Deconstructed. Let's get straight to it. What does defund the police mean in practice in the real world? Uh, Defunding the police means that we're actually resourcing um, communities like black poor communities with um, access to healthcare, access to adequate public education, and access um, to jobs. Um, much of what the police do right now are things that social workers can do, things that case managers can do, uh, things that um, other governmental workers can do. And that's why our movement is calling to defund them. Is there a difference, Patrice, between defunding the police and abolishing the police? Because we've heard both slogans in recent weeks, and sometimes they sound interchangeable, but sometimes they don't. Sure. Some people believe in the defund demand because it means that we'll keep police um, at some capacity. And some people believe that the defund demand is our pathway towards abolition. So they are two different demands, um, depending on your uh, philosophies. I'm an abolitionist. So I believe that the first step to abolition is defunding both the police system, but also the carceral system, which is the system that has created mass incarceration. Uh, So a lot of liberals listening to this will say we're totally on board with the idea that the police are out of control, that institutional racism is a problem. But defunding the police, abolishing the police, those are steps too far. We want reform. What do you say to them? What's wrong with police reform? Well, what I say to people is um, when we say defunding the police, we're not saying stop having people be accountable to issues of harm and violence. This is not a conversation about lack of accountability. This is a conversation about building in a new system of accountability, one that is based on an economy of care over an economy of punishment. Right now, we have a system that is punitive, that is based on punishing human beings, and that is cruel and evil. Um, The system that we're asking for is a compassionate, a loving system, and that is able to still hold people accountable for harm that they cause. That is um, totally in alignment with people who believe in defunding and also with people who believe in abolition. But reform, you believe the police, you have to go beyond reform, reform's not enough, reform doesn't work. What's your position on quote-unquote reform? I think it depends on the kind of reform. Um, when I talk about reform, I'm thinking about non-reformist reform, which is my work um, is about decreasing the police's ability to be in contact with black people. And so whatever demands that I'm making or the organizations that I work um, with are making is always about how do we lessen the uh, burden of police on black communities? So 
a reform can be a reform like body cameras. Um, does that change the structural violence and racism inside of um, uh, police departments? No, actually, it has not changed it at all. Instead, body cameras are just showing us more and more um, the dysfunctionality of policing. And so um, the other reform that we're calling for, because defunding the police isn't a reform, but it's a reform that isn't giving the police state more money. Hmm. The immediate response from a lot of people in recent days, including people of color, to this idea of defunding or even abolishing the police is, what happens if I'm in trouble? What happens if I'm facing a violent or dangerous person? Who do I call? Um, uh, hopefully we can build new institutions that people can have a new place to call. Um, if it's 911, then, um, hopefully if someone's in a mental health crisis, you can call 911. And instead of them sending a police officer who may kill the person who's in that mental health crisis, you call someone like a caseworker or a psychiatrist who's mm. um, been trained to de-escalate an issue. The problem is, um, oftentimes when police do show up, more violence happens. It doesn't make it less violent when the police are involved. And that's very important for people to understand. I will say, though, on the federal level, there seems to be a disconnect between that kind of thinking and what activists and protesters are arguing on the street and then what the leadership within the Democratic Party is saying. I spoke with Congressman Clyburn uh, on the show about the Justice and Policing Act, and he said he was just against the idea of defunding the police. And he, he said it was just a slogan that would have to be explained to voters. He likes the, the idea of, quote, restructuring the pol police departments instead. Alex, what would you say to Congressman Clyburn? I, isn't he and, and those... National Democrats, don't they represent a significant hurdle for this movement? You know, I'm not wedded to any particular slogan or two-word description of this movement. Defund the police kind of emerged organically as something that could go on a cardboard sign or a hashtag. But this movement is clear about what it wants. It wants the redirection of resources from criminalization to community empowerment, health and safety. And so we don't need Congress to pass a defund the police bill. We need Congress to quit subsidizing local police, to dial back the drug war, to get rid of SESTA-FOSTA that criminalizes sex work, and to put new resources into bringing counselors and social workers back into our schools, to creating high-quality medically-based drug treatment programs to help combat the opioid crisis. These are things Congress could do right away without having to get caught up in the language of defund the police. Andrea, are you concerned about the Democratic establishment at large that doesn't seem moved by this idea of defunding the police? Joe Biden, the presumptive Democratic nominee, says he will not support calls to defund the police. I'm wondering, you know, this, the same question I asked Alex, where does this leave the, this movement and then the police abolition movement at large if national Democrats who are in power are, are so staunchly against it. I think that definitely there are significant portions of the Democratic leadership that are completely out of step with what people on the ground are demanding and frankly what's needed to meet this moment and to honor the lives of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Tony McDade, and so many more people who have been killed or harmed by police. And again, this is not the time for solutions of the past, which have failed us. This is the time for solutions of the future, where we are going to build a world premised on genuine safety and accountability and sustainability and thriving for our communities, and particularly for Black and Brown communities. And so people could look, for instance, I agree with Alex that they don't need to introduce the defund police bill if they're not happy with the hashtag, but they can look to uh, Representative Ayanna Presley's People's Justice Guarantee, which has provisions in it that specifically would redirect funding from law enforcement to supporting communities to come up with different responses to 911 calls that would support community members, help them, that would redirect money 
to the kinds of community-based transformative approaches to safety that Alex was just talking about that would redirect money from pouring police officers, armed police officers into schools who commit not only physical violence, but sexual violence in schools, and instead move that money to flooding those schools with counselors and resources that will assist young people in surviving and thriving and learning restorative justice practices that they can then take out into their communities to help mediate, prevent, and transform harm. We know the dangers that with regards to austerity, the absolute interest in private security interests and others into mobilizing this moment for the mercenary industry. And whether or not these cuts will turn into austerity or will they be turned into cuts of police departments and radical and deep funding of everything else. That's what we need to focus on right now. Defund the police is not just defund. It is slash and get rid of abusive, broken windows, systemically racist and classist policing, and redeploy and redistribute money. Other vital sectors, healthcare, education, and all other areas that are vital in states and localities. It also means breaking up different functions inside the police department. Of course you need people that investigate and deal with real crimes, but you absolutely do not need people policing communities, terrorizing and harassing communities, or being given the assignments to doing jobs that they are not able and did not even sign up to do, like social work or education. So we need to make sure that these moves don't mean that the money just gets taken away in an austerity drive, which we already see across this country. And that will be the counter move that you might see as this agenda gets embraced by a broader set of policymakers. We already know that we're about to see harsh austerity. New York City is facing a several billion dollar budget cut and the private sector which has already stepped up its efforts. We've seen as an example, the cooperation between one private billionaire giving the Baltimore Police Department essentially a drone program, which we've talked about on this program, that the impulse to go towards austerity and privatization is a very real political formation right now. And we also see this in other areas of the world where there's significant problems of out of control violent, racist, and brutal policing, including Brazil and South Africa. So the clear, clear policy agenda needs to be that that money is not going anywhere. That money is going to health, education, jobs, and other community-supported infrastructure. Then there needs to be the redesigning of the departments themselves so that different tasks are split up into discrete and distinct categories. And this is going to involve treating the democracy and security of all as a fundamental right and not a privilege of any one race or class. We have seen the absolute viciousness of police departments that many people have been very aware of and have known because they've been on the receiving end of from the perspective of systemic racism for quite some time. And we've seen examples like this, the Minneapolis Police Department. We're going to let's play this clip of them cutting tires of, uh, do we have this clip of the Minneapolis Police Department cutting? Yeah. This is some protesters and news crews and medics in Minneapolis found themselves stranded after recent tests, uh, protests. The tires of their cars had been slashed. Many assume the protesters were to blame. I didn't assume the protesters were to blame, but videos reveal a different culprit, the police. Watch this. These are police officers literally puncturing the tires of this car, people serving as medics during these protests. We need to get rid of all forms of lifestyle policing all forms of so-called broken windows policing, which has been the dynamic that has facilitated the 
gentrification, redesigning, and absolute brutality in modern cities that have given rise and been the handmaiden of the real estate industry and extreme inequality. We need to get rid of that entirely. And we need to make sure that the budgets that remain are redeployed effectively and redesigned creatively inside the departments themselves. When aiming to dismantle a police department, we must be vigilant that the neoliberal religion of replacing the public with the of the public with the private does not lead to a rise in private policing. It would be disastrous. And if we achieve the goal of weakening the police force, we can only see a rise in policing tied to private firms used to terrorize on behalf of private interest. We need to also be extremely vigilant of the Democratic Party co-opting the movement and building on symbolic reforms that don't get to the fundamentals. Now, the Democrats have put forward a bill that, as an example, would ban chokeholds. What kind of a disgusting, obscene society we live in that that wasn't already banded ages ago? And of course, we've also seen, as in the murder of Eric Garner, that bans do not stop police violence. Make it easier to sue police officers who unjustly injure or kill Citizens, lower the federal threshold for when police officers can be charged with using excessive force, create a national police misconduct registry and racial profiling, limit the transfer of military equipment to police departments. These are all good things in and of themselves, but none of them amount to systemic and complete demilitarization, as well as a redesign of policing so that these distinct categories are broken up between real crime that needs to be dealt with, things that should not be crimes at all, like the drug war, or areas that are best responded to by social workers, educators, and other community initiatives. The next chapter of this movement is yet to be determined. The social base is growing. There are countervailing forces prepared to absorb and redirect popular anger towards the reaffirmation of establishment power, both in terms of neoliberalism and even in terms of some of the most dangerous tendencies in policing itself. So we need to keep pressing on and we need to be prepared with the next phases of strategy. What's coming up next is one or more segments that were originally only for members, but since this is a reposted episode, I've unlocked them for everyone. Enjoy, and if you like getting the extra content, think about becoming a member yourself. The call to defund the police is, I think, an abolitionist uh, demand, but it reflects only one aspect of uh, the process represented by uh, the demand. Defunding the police is not simply about withdrawing funding for law enforcement and doing nothing else. And it appears as if uh, this is uh, the, 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 the rather superficial understanding uh, that has caused um, Biden to move in the direction he's moving in. It's about shifting public funds to new services and and, and new institutions, uh, mental health counselors uh, who um, can respond to people who are in crisis without arms. It's about shifting funding to education, to housing, to recreation. All of these things help to create security and safety. It's about learning that safety, safeguarded by violence, is not really safety. And I would say that abolition is not primarily a negative strategy. It's not primarily about dismantling, getting rid of, but it's about re-envisioning. It's about building anew. And I would argue that abolition is a feminist uh, strategy. uh, And one sees in these abolitionist demands that are, are emerging the pivotal influence of of feminist uh, theories and practices. Explain that further. Um, Well, I want us to see feminism not only as addressing um, issues of gender, uh, but rather 
as a methodological approach uh, of, of understanding the intersectionality of, 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 of struggles uh, and, 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 and issues. Uh, um, abolition feminism counters carceral feminism, which has unfortunately assumed that issues such as violence against women can be effectively addressed by um, using police force by uh, by 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 using imprisonment as a solution, and of course we know that uh, Joseph Biden in um, 1994, uh, who uh, claims that um, the Violence Against Women Act was such an important moment in his career, uh, the Violence Against Women Act was couched within the 1994 um, uh, Crime Act, uh, the, the Clinton Crime Act. Uh, and what we're calling for is a process of decriminalization, not a rec recognizing that, um, that threats to safety, threats to security come um, not primarily from what is defined as crime, but rather from the failure of, of, of institutions in our country to address issues of health, issues of, of, of violence, education, etc. So abolition is really about rethinking the kind of future we want, the social future, the economic uh, uh, future, the political future. It's about revolution, I would argue. You write in Freedom is a Constant Struggle, neoliberal ideology drives us to focus on individuals, ourselves, individual victims, individual perpetrators. But how is it possible to solve the massive problem of racist state violence by calling upon individual police officers to bear the burden of that history and to assume that by prosecuting them, by exacting our revenge on them, we would have somehow made progress in eradicating racism? So explain what exactly you're demanding. Well, neoliberal logic assumes that the fundamental unit of society is the individual, uh, and I would say the abstract individual. Um, uh, according to that logic, black people can combat racism by pulling themselves up by their own individual bootstraps. Uh, um, that logic recognizes, or fails rather, to recognize that there are institutional barriers that cannot be uh, brought down by individual determination. If a black person is materially unable to attend the university, the solution is not affirmative action, they argue, but rather the person simply needs to work harder, get good grades, and do what is necessary in order to acquire the funds to pay for tuition. Neoliberal logic deters us from thinking about the simpler solution, which is free education. I'm thinking about uh, the fact that we have been aware of the, the, the need for these institutional strategies at least since 1935, and of course before, but I'm choosing 1935 because that was the year when W.E.B. Du Bois published his uh, germinal uh, Black Reconstruction in America. Um, and the question was not what should individual black people do, but rather how to reorganize and restructure post-slavery society in order to guarantee the incorporation of those who have who had been formerly enslaved. The society could not remain the same or should not have remained the same. Neoliberalism resists change at the individual level. It asks the individual to adapt to conditions of capitalism, to conditions of racism.
thanks for listening to another throwback episode plucked from the archives to give you context for today. For more like this, check the feed as this is a weekly feature of the show that's in addition to all of our new episodes. As always, keep the comments coming in. You can leave a voicemail or text at 202-999-3991 or email me to j at bestofleft.com. These episodes are remastered and produced by Dion Clark, Aaron Clayton, and myself. We also produce funny and informative bonus episodes along with Amanda Hoffman as thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships to the show. If you get value out of the show, we'd appreciate your support at bestofleft.com slash support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcasts app. And if you want to continue the discussion, join our Discord community. There's a link to join in the show notes. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, with new episodes coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Thank you.